You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Well, kids, you can, uh, you can make your way out to children's ministry. And uh, man, I can't say it enough. So thankful for the men and women who serve in our children's ministry. Um, what a blessing that is um, to the parents who get to come and listen and maybe take notes and not be distracted. Uh, and for the kids, um, they are working hard to, um, to work through God's word um, with those kids. So, so thankful for those who serve there. And if that's somewhere that the Lord has gifted you, um, there is always room for more in our children's ministry. So I just encourage you to chat with Melanie. Um, They uh, absolutely would love um, some more teachers there. Um, We can turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 1. So uh, right to page number 1. That's where where we're going to start off uh, this morning. If you don't have a Bible uh, or you don't have one with you, Um, one of our ushers, (laughs) hey, thanks, Sam, they would be happy to give you a Bible and stick one into your hands. They're, they're busy guys. Thanks, Jared. Um, so if you need, uh, if you need a copy, um, to just have open front, we want you to have God's word on your lap. And, uh, so grab one of those if you don't have your own, uh, and if you don't have a Bible, at home, they're one that you can read easily. Take this one. It's our gift to you. I'm glad for you to have it. Um, Genesis chapter 1. As I mentioned, we started this last week into uh, a new series through the book of Genesis. So we're going to be uh, about, I don't know, a year and a half. That's what I said. Um, I'll be honest with you. I was going to do creation days 1 to 6 today, and we're going to get all the way to the end of day 1. So maybe we'll be <laughs> two or three years. We'll see what the Lord has in store. Um, but uh, just a rich, rich book. Um, so today, yeah, verses uh, 3 to 5, um, creation day 1, God said, let there be light. Um, that's unbelievable. Um, we'll dive more into that. Um, the book of Genesis uh, is a book of foundations, right? It is the, the groundwork for the rest of the Bible. And so the, the foundation piece that, that determines the, the size and the shape and the stability of the rest of the structure. And so the, the story of Jesus doesn't begin in the manger. The story of Jesus begins in Genesis chapter 1. Um, God is building that foundation. Genesis is laying that groundwork that we move forward on, and, uh, and he begins to introduce some, some concepts and themes and ideas to kind of weave in some threads from the very beginning um, that are significant, that will build and grow, that will kind of resurface here and there as you go through the Old Testament, culminating in Christ. And, and this morning, as we look at day one of creation, um, we're going to see uh, two significant threads introduced for the first time. And so there's this principle in in biblical interpretation, um, often referred to as uh, the law of first mention. So this this law of first mention, um, H.B. Charles puts it this way. Uh, He says it is 
uh, clues to understanding a biblical subject are often found in the first time it's mentioned in the scripture. So notice it's, it's not a hard and fast law. It's not like the first mention sets some unchanging parameters, but rather often, not always, but often, the first mention of a topic uh, comes with some simplicity, some clarity, uh, and, and, and begins to set a trajectory and is a helpful um, foundation, gives us some clues of understanding that topic moving forward. And so it seems pretty obvious, looking at that, um, why Genesis then is important. As this first book, there's all kinds of instances of the first mention of these different themes. Um, and we're going we're gonna to taste of that this morning as we go into Genesis chapter 1. Um, boy, before we, uh, before we go there, um, would you pray with me? Um, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you, Lord, that in your grace you call us to consider our calling that not many of us were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but you chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. You chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. You chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in your presence. Lord, it's because of you that we are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Father, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. All we have is Christ. God, we come to your word this morning. Um, humbled by it, that you would speak to us, that you would entrust your word to us. God, would you be at work this morning um, through a weak, foolish, broken vessel for the glory of your name. Lord, I pray that my wisdom would be set aside this morning. I pray that if there's anything that I have contrived in my head that is not true to your word, that those words would fall to the ground, but that your truth would be proclaimed, God. That your Holy Spirit would be at work applying that truth to our hearts, lifting our eyes to see the wonder of the gospel again and the glory of Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, we, we beg that you would be at work in us this morning. Um, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 1, um, we're going to start from verse 3, but let's pick up at, at Genesis 1, 1, just for, for context, and we'll go through to verse 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So looking at this passage, this first day of 
creation. Um, the first thing here, the first thing we see, this, this first mention, uh, is the Word of God. The Word of God comes out here clearly. As we move from the, the introduction, kind of verses 1 and 2 there, into the, the detailed account, the, the, the seven days, six days of creation, one day of rest, um, the first thing we see are these words, and God said. God spoke. The Lord speaks. We have a God who, who talks. And by his word, he creates. Now, I'm a little bit conflicted here because I would far rather spend all of our time talking about what the Bible does teach. Um, but there's a lot wrapped up in here. Um, there are a lot of wrong things that are, that are kind of pushed into this passage. And so I feel the need to take some time to talk about what the Bible does not teach. And then we'll come back um, and, and get to the good stuff. Um, I want to talk about two theories uh, of how God created the world that are, that, are, that are sometimes kind of laid over this, imposed on this, I think. Um, one is called the gap theory. Um, the other is called the day-age theory. And I just want to look at these a little bit. Um, both of these are ways of, of reading Scripture um, while making room for kind of the, the millions and billions of years um, that, that the scientists talk about today. So that's, that's kind of where this is coming from, is an attempt to be, to be true to Scripture, to hold to the Word of God, and, and also be able to kind of integrate some of that uh, scientific language and, and understanding. Um, it's important. Um, our doctrinal statement as a church says um, that... Uh, so our doctrinal statement, that's what we all agree to as members of this church. We're in. This is what we believe. This is what we stand on. It says this. We believe that God the Father created all things in six literal days for his glory according to his own will. So this is important. It's part of our doctrinal statement. We think this is significant. Um, to deny that truth, I think, um, raises some serious questions about what you believe about the clarity of Scripture and the veracity of Scripture. Um, it's not a small thing. And yet, let's be clear. At least for many people who hold these views, certainly not all people, but, but many people who would hold to these things we're about to talk about, um, this is an in-house debate, right? Hear me. Some people would use this platform, these arguments, to, to, to dismantle the Bible and deny the gospel. But there are many who would hold to these things that we're about to talk about, um, who love the Lord, who love his word, who love the gospel, who are true believers. Um, I just think they're incorrect about this. And, and so um, there's a tendency, I think, in our day or in certain circles to, to kind of elevate everything to the level of heresy. That's wrong. You are outside the church. There's no way you can be a Christian and believe those things. Um, and, and it's done with a, an attempt to try to honor Scripture, but it doesn't work. If we raise everything to the height of the seriousness of the gospel, um, we haven't heightened the gospel. We've, we've, we've lowered it. We've flatlined it. Um, people are saved not by trusting by faith that God created the earth in six literal days 6,000 years ago, they're saved by repentance and faith and putting their trust in the work of Christ on the cross. Can somebody do that and be wrong about all kinds of other biblical truth? Absolutely they can. I might, I might want to talk with them. I say, I don't think you're consistent in the way you're seeing this, but we're not saved by consistency in our doctrine. 
Um, we're saved by trusting in Christ. And every one of us is on this journey of learning and understanding Scripture and living more in line with it. Uh, all of us. And so with that said, um, this is important. It's not a salvation topic. This matters, and there's some questions about how to understand Scripture rightly. Um, but, but we can still be brothers with people who disagree. Let's dig into this. Um, the first uh, is called the gap theory, as I mentioned. Um, and, and the first thing they would usually do is point to Genesis 1.1. God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis 1.2, um, where it says the earth was formless and void, that word was there, um, it, it could be translated became. And, and they would kind of lean hard on that, and that's not out to lunch. The, the Hebrew syntax allows for that. It, it could read the earth became formless and void. And so they would conjecture that there was a first creation. Genesis 1-1, God created, and then there's this gap. There's this billions of years or millions of years. Um, many would say this is uh, where the fall of Satan happened, and that was kind of the end of that first creation, and, and there was destruction. Probably they would likely say a flood, because then we see the world is covered in water. Um, and then Day one of creation is, is God then kind of recreating, starting over, starting fresh. A new creation um, where our history starts. And, and so you can see how they kind of in one hand say, oh no, absolutely, days you know, one to seven, that's true, that's literal, but there was something else before that, and in that space we find the fossil record and the dinosaurs and all that. Um, the problem is, it's not what the Bible teaches. It, it, it's just not what the Bible teaches. There are some... Uh, some questions that have to be asked. If there's this massive event that happened between verses 1 and 2, it's sure not clear in the text. I mean, you might find a space where you can put it in, but it's not there by itself. There's nothing said. And there's nothing mentioned anywhere else in Scripture that would give credence to that. On the contrary, I think Genesis 2, 4 it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. He talks about as one event. The earth and the heavens were created. I just told you about it. Days one to six. It's a single event um, in his eyes. And, and, and Exodus 20, 11. Um, in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, uh, and rested on the seventh day. Heavens, the earth, the sea, all that is in them. I'm just thinking a little more about this now, going the sea. Uh, the, the, the world was supposed to be destroyed by a flood. The, the sea obviously had to already have existed for the gap theory. No, in the six days, the Lord created the sea. If there's a previous creation, if there's a gap, um, what about the heavens and the earth? What about the planets and the stars? Did those get wiped away and remade? Because that's what we see in 1 to 6. What about light? Light's created on day one. Was there light in this previous creation? Did God destroy light and recreate it? It, it does not seem to flow. Um, as we saw as well, Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen, he's talking about the things that we see now, the world that we are beholding, is not made out of things that are visible. Okay? This world that we're looking at was not recreated out of some pre-existing sludge. The world around us was called into existence by God at creation. Um, 
There's some theological issues with the gap theory. Um, for there to have been this previous world that was destroyed, um, you have to have death before sin. You have death before uh, Adam and Eve and uh, Romans 5.12, 1 Corinthians 15.21. You can look those up later. Clearly teach that, that Adam's sin is what brought death, introduced death into this world. So I don't see biblical warrant for this, this previous creation without mankind um, that ended in failure uh, that is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture and, and, and just kind of arbitrarily pushing that in. Uh, I don't see it. I see how it could be convenient. Uh, I see how if, if, if you want to make room for that, you can work at it. Um, but if you're just reading the Bible, if you just sat down with this text, you would never come to that, to that conclusion. The second theory uh, is called the day-age theory. Um, so where the gap theory sets out to kind of put those billions of years in the gap between verses 1 and 2, um, the day-age theory, as the name suggests, is going to stretch those billions of years out uh, through the six days of creation. Each of those days is an age. It's not a literal 24-hour day. And uh, they would say this is very poetic language. God's not intending to be literal here. He's, he's kind of coming down to our level to explain this in terms we understand. Um, and again, some people for sure use this kind of day-age theory um, to then introduce an evolutionary process or even to work God out of the process, um, but not all of them. And, and they would look at the creation account, again, saying this is, this is poetic language. Um, the day yom there in Hebrew, or the word yom is the, is the word for day, um, and it could be understood as a longer period of time. It is used sometimes in that kind of metaphorical way. Um, we saw that already in Genesis 2-4, right? In the day the Lord created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's at least six days that he's talking about, and he uses the phrase day there. Um, clearly not a 24-hour period. On top of that, um, they would refer to uh, 2 Peter 3.8. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. See, the Lord doesn't understand days like we do. And how could you even claim to have a 24-hour day um, for days one through three? There's no sun. There are no moon and stars. The, the, the solar system isn't going yet. How can you say that those are literal 24-hour days? Isn't that a little bit nonsensical? Well, as for the word yom, day, um, Yep, it can mean a longer period of time sometimes, but, but if you do some careful exegetical work, if you look at how that word is used, um, out of the 2,247 times used, I didn't count them, I found that, um, 1,800 of those times, it is clearly meant the 24-hour day. So 18 out of 2,200 times, it means literal 24-hour day. That's obviously its normal usage. When it refers to a longer period, it's almost always in the phrase, as it is in Genesis 2-4, in the day of, right? We understand that. It's like the difference between, you know, Thursday and someday, right? If I tell you, I want to get together with you on Thursday, we know what we're talking about. If I tell you, I want to get together with you someday, you're like, oh, he's putting me off. Um, probably not. I'm trying. I'm sorry. Um, but there's a difference in the way we use the, the language and the construction around it. In the day of has a pretty clear meaning. There's there's good reason to take that as, as not a 24-hour day. Um, adding to that, oh, sorry, I'm going to go back. Um, 
Every single time, another thing, every single time the word yom is used with a number. If you have day and number in the same verse, it's a 24-hour it's a day, right? Nobody thinks that Jonah was in the whale um, for three ages. Um, it's three days. It, it, it's a it's 24-hour period. Every time we see numbers and yom together in Scripture, it's, it's literal 24-hour days. Add to that, Moses doesn't just use the word day by itself. He doesn't just say created day one. He uses the phrase, there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day, the third day. Evening and morning. He's, he's making this pretty clear. He's laying it out. And those words, evening and morning, um, they always mean sunrise and sunset, or sunset and sunrise, every time. Um, if Moses wanted to write about an age, he could have used the word olam, he could have used the word kadem. Um, both of those speak of a long period of time. Those would have been very fitting in there. He doesn't. He uses the word day. And so there's a lot of reasons to believe, uh, as, as Moses is writing this, that these are literal 24-hour days. Um, what about 2 Peter 3.8? Days is a thousand years, thousand years is a day, sure, um, but that has nothing to do with the length of a day. That's not what Peter's talking about. Peter's talking about people who are mocking that, well, Jesus said he's coming back and he's not here yet. What's going on? Is he slow? Is he late? And Peter's like, God's just not as impatient as you. God can wait a thousand years, and it's like a day. It doesn't matter to him. God isn't, isn't impatient like you. He's not talking about the definition of a day. Um, that's out of context. And so, um, what about the supposed days before the sun is created? That's a little odd. 24-hour day, but no sun. I mean, you already have light with no sun. We'll talk more about that. Um, that's odd. But I think this is actually one of the strongest arguments for a literal day. Um, what about the days after the sun and the moon and the stars? Why, why are we talking only about the ones before? Because verse 18 says, God created the sun and the moon to rule the day, yom, and the night, separating light from darkness. And then verse 19, the next verse says, there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. How explicit could he possibly be? God made the, the sun for the daytime. And the nighttime was dark, and, and then there was daytime and nighttime. He's obviously in verse 4. He has to be talking about a literal 24-hour day. Um, and if you're looking at a large passage of Scripture and wondering, what does the word yom mean in this context? Uh, and right in the middle, you have a statement like that, and he's talking about the, the movement of the solar system and the day and the night. Um, I think you have your answer. You'd need a really clear reason to, to differentiate that word from one place to the next. So, um, I think that's compelling. I think exegetically, again, if you're just looking at what God's Word says, it is clear, incredibly clear. Why then do we have so many intelligent people holding to these two other views? Here's the problem. They're starting with science. They're starting with, let's admit it, faulty human observations. We're looking at the world now and trying to guess what happened thousands or millions or billions of years ago, and those theories have changed over time. And we're starting with that and then trying to add the Bible and trying to make them fit together. This is what science tells us. How do I make the Bible fit? That's the wrong way to go about it. That's backwards. We ought to start confidently in the Word of God 
as Paul would say, let God be true, every man a liar. Start with the clear teaching of Scripture. And yes, we understand Scripture is not meant to be a a science textbook, um, but there are some things that are clear. And and we should hold to those, and then we can look at science through that grid and say, well, what makes sense? How do we put this together? Um, And there's some things that go real easy, and there's some things that are like, I don't know. But if I have to go between God's Word and man's Word, I'm going to go with God. Um, and uh, if you're curious about that, if you want to dive deeper into some of these things, man, there's a website called Answers in Genesis. They've got some very intelligent scientists digging into these things, some great answers there. Answers in Genesis is a, a good resource I would commend to you. Um, but we start with the clear teaching of Scripture, and, uh, and then we go from there. Now, that's important as a, as a foundation as we, as we move forward. Um, God spoke, and the world was created. Not just set into motion, not a process of millions of years. The Lord spoke and things came into existence. And that tells us a lot um, about the word of God. So let's get into that. Um, Firstly, um, as we look at this passage, we see the word of God is powerful. It's powerful. Back to Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the, the universe was created. How? By the word of God. So that is, what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. So look around. The earth, the sky, the trees, the grass, the crazy unique animals, the, the far reaches of the solar system with its billions of galaxies and billions of stars. All of that created by the word of God. Just stay here in, in day one. Um, light. Light is so complex. Um, I wanted to dive more into this, and I realized I don't even know enough about light to explain to you how little we understand about light. It's weird. It's a particle. It's a wave. It moves at unbelievable speeds. We don't understand light. God just spoke it into being. He gets it. Psalm 33.8 says, For he spoke, and it came to be. He Commanded and it stood firm. The word of God is powerful. Alongside that, the word of God is effective. It's effective. Um, it's related to power, um, but, there, but there's a nuance there. Uh, it's not exactly the same. Effective means that there's intentionality. There's, there's purpose. Application of this power happens um, specifically. You can imagine a strong man uh, who's a bit of a bumbling fool and, and can't actually get anything done. He's powerful, but he's not effective. God's word is effective. Look at verse 3. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Not something similar to light, not some proximity of it or something unknown or haphazard. God gets exactly what God asks for. When we speak, when we act, just Think about this for a minute. We are always left hoping that it will produce the effect that we intended, right? Um, Maybe a weird example, but think of the best pool player who ever lived, right? Amazing skill. He can can hit that cue ball just perfectly so that it heads down the table and connects with another ball, which then hits another ball into the pocket, and he can do that 98 times out of 100 He's not worried about it. He has this great skill, and yet every time he connects his cue to that cue ball, he's hoping. 
He's waiting. He's watching. Will it happen again? There are all kinds of forces and outside uh, things that that would uh, maybe hinder that or change that. He's waiting. He's watching. Isaiah 55, 11, God says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God speaks, and he doesn't hope it will happen. He doesn't watch and wait to see if it will be carried out as he intended. Um, He determines it so. He, He makes it happen. His speech is that powerful. God hopes for nothing. The word of God is powerful. The word of God is effective. It produces its intended result 110% of the time. And then God's word is good. Look at verse 4. God says, let there be light. And there's light. And then God saw that the light was good. It's good. He declares it to be so. Um, The Hebrew word there is tov. It means um, that which is proper, it's fitting, it's useful, it's pleasant, it's, it's agreeable, desirable. God's word brings about good things because it is good. And here's why, the, the last note here, because the word of God is an extension of himself. God's word is an extension of, of who he is. There's a word play here, actually, in, in these first verses of Genesis, um, God's personal name is Yahweh, right? Exodus 3.14, God reveals to Moses, uh, my name is, I am who I am. Now you're like, well, Exodus doesn't come till way later. Sure, but that had already happened when this was being written, right? Like Moses is writing this after the Exodus. Um, All of Israel knows the name of the Lord. It's actually pretty fresh in their minds. Um, Yahweh, that's our English butchering of the Hebrew phrase, I am that I am. Um, And the language used here in Genesis 1 um, says, let there be and there was. Um, The the Hebrew words there are yehi and wehi, Yahweh. It's the same root words. So the I am says, let there be, and then there is. God's word is this this extension of, of who he is. So of course it's good, because he is good. His word is true to himself. And and so these are the things that that we see in this first mention of the word of God. What is the word of God? It is powerful. It is effective. uh, It is good. And it is an extension of God's very being. Now, let's follow that theme through a little bit. The rest of the Old Testament says all kinds of things about the the power and and effectiveness and goodness of the word of God. Um, But let's jump way ahead to John 1. Verses 1 to 3, John says this about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. So anytime you you see the Word, God said, you you can in your head overlay, that's Jesus is right there in the middle of that. He is God's agency in carrying that out. And once we get to the New Testament, John 1.14 puts it this way, and the Word 
became flesh and dwelt among us. That powerful, effective, good expression of himself um, was born as a baby and lived among us. Jesus is the living word of God. In him, all the fullness of God's effectual power dwells. In him, all the goodness of God is, is, is embodied. Uh, he is the absolute fullest expression, extension of the Father. Because he is God. Jesus is the, the living word. Through Jesus, the world was created. Jesus is the, the fullness of God's self-expression. Where does that leave us today? Jesus is gone. He's not here. I'd love to have him come and preach. Um, He's not around. So what about this amazing word of God that came to dwell among us? Was that that only accessible for like 33 years while Jesus lived here or or three years while he was teaching and, and doing his ministry? No. No, the living word of God, Jesus, is communicated to us in the written word of God, the Bible. The living word is in the written word. This this is huge. This is amazing. The Lord speaking, the word of the Lord gets recorded, gets written down. God works through people in such a way um, that, that speaking of the Bible, 2 Peter 1.21 says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's God's word. Paul says, 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is breathed out by God. The Bible. This is God's word. What you hold in your lap right now is God's communication of, of who he is in Jesus. And so uh, Hebrews 1 says, In many times God spoke in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us, how? In his Son. And then his Son uh, is encapsulated and written down and recorded by the apostles in the New Testament. That's why we refer to the Bible as the Word of God. That's a a weighty title. Uh, That's a big deal, that this is the, the Word of God. This book is powerful. This book is effective. This book is good. This book is is an extension of who God is. Certainly not in the same sense that Jesus was, but no less truthfully, no less accurately. And by this word, he continues to create. By the word, he creates the church, the people of God. The beginning of God's new creation is brought from from spiritual death to life, is rescued from sin and death, given eternal life and joy with him. And it's created by his word. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the word of God, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Greek. Further to that point, uh, 1 Peter 1.23 says, Since you have been Born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. How? Through the living and abiding word of God. We are born again by the word of God. 
that is living and abiding, that gives us life and abides in us. This is not just some old book. This is not just some collection of the writings of of wise old men. What you hold on your lap is the very word of God, that same word of God that spoke out and commanded, let there be light. You might say that this, this book is mystical in a sense. We get so caught up today in our world about crystals and chakras and this mystical power and, and seances or tarot cards or looking at the horoscopes and, and we look for this kind of spiritual power and all these things and then the Bible sits dusty on a shelf. There's no power in those things. There's demons messing with people. They're not powerful. Not like this. God's word has power. God is communicating, expressing to us who he is in his word. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know God, this is where you need to go. Don't go looking inside yourself. You're not God. Nature's fine. We get some kind of general reflection of the beauty of God in nature, but this is where God says, this is who I am. People have this idea we can kind of create God to be whatever we want him to be. I like to think of God as this. I like to think of God as that. Well, that's fine. It just doesn't mean anything. I mean, I like to think of, uh, I don't know, I like to think of Jared as being four foot tall. He's not. (laughs) It doesn't change it. God is a definitive, existent person. You don't get to change who he is. You don't get to change Morality. You don't get to decide what is good and bad, what is right and wrong. God has set that in his creation, and he's told us about it. If you want to know who he actually is, you have to open up the Bible and come and see who, has, who he is. It's, it's written uh, in his word for us, and it will lead you to seeing and knowing the living word, Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, We we need to realize, we need to be reminded again that that this is who we are. This is core to our our definition as the church. Um, It is by his word that we've been brought from from, from death to life to to faith. And and it's by his word that we continue in that new life. We are people of the book. There is no room for us to set this aside or to say, well, I think some things from scripture but not other things. No, it's all or nothing. It's either God or not God. He rules. This is his word. And so it's by his word that we continue in faith. John 15, 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So notice, abiding in Christ, resting in, walking with, being, having a personal relationship with him, is parallel to his words abiding in you. Your walk with the Lord, your your health and and depth and vitality of your Christian life will be directly related to your relationship with this book, the Word of God. It's it's written to us and for us for that purpose. Don't don't neglect that. Sometimes we neglect the Word by uh, simply failing to spend time in the Word. Right? We just don't pick it up. We just don't read it. We're not saturated in it and soaking in it. Um, other times, I think we're, we're prone to neglect the word um, by simply reading it, failing to appreciate what it is that we're reading. 
right? Maybe this is just me, um, but, but I can get up in the morning and I can read eight chapters of Scripture and check my little box and go about my day and, and never have been abiding with Christ, right? I just read words on a page. I just fulfilled my little moral duty in the morning. That's not abiding with Christ. When you sit down tomorrow and you, and you open your Bible on your lap, take a minute to consider. This is the Word of God for me. This is how Christ wants to abide with me. There's a relational, powerful, effectual goodness of God expressing himself in this to me right now. That's unbelievable. That ought to leave us hungry, like i got to get to bed early so I can get up, so I can spend time with the Lord, so I have this opportunity to open this amazing book and see who God is. We ought to tremble as we hold this amazing word in our hands. It's the first theme we see laid out in these opening passages, um, the Word of God. The second thing we see is the light of God, the light of God. Let's just read it again, get it fresh in our heads. God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now there's something odd here. As I mentioned, a lot of people kind of take issue with this. We have light created on day one. The sun is not created till day four. The plants, the trees are created on day three. So obviously this is ridiculous, right? Well, I love what Calvin had to say about it. He says, this did not, however, happen from inconsideration or by accident that the light preceded the sun and the moon, the Lord, by the very order of creation, bears witness that he holds in his hand the light, which he is able to impart to us without the sun or the moon. God did it on purpose. He knows our tendency to say, oh, the light, yeah, that comes from the sun. And he's saying, no, it doesn't. That comes from me. I create the light. I don't need a sun. Why, why would he? What would restrict the Lord from creating in that order? Obviously nothing. And it's good for us to s- sit back and go, that doesn't make sense to me. And God did it. He did it intentionally. He created the light. Notice it says that uh, the light was good. And then he separates the light from the darkness. Light and, and darkness is another theme that runs through the Bible. Um, light and darkness are common metaphors that God uses. Now, I don't mean to imply by that that God didn't literally create light and darkness on day one. He did. But I think he created light and darkness intentionally to use them as metaphors. See, we always go the other way, right? Like we see things in the world and then we kind of co-opt them to use it to explain something. God creates things in the world to help us understand things. Um, So he created light and darkness for this purpose, and and light is frequently used as a metaphor for that which is good and right and pure. It's God's blessing. It's it's life. It's hope. It's peace. It's joy. It's It's a symbol of the very presence of God. Darkness is also often a metaphor for that which is unholy that which is sinful, that which is wretched for for pain and suffering, and then specifically for the wrath of God, the judgment of God. So we see light culminating in the presence of God and darkness culminating in the 
wrath of God. When God unleashes his plagues, um, destroying Pharaoh and and the Egyptians, um, the second to last plague, thick darkness falls over the land. It's an emblem of God's wrath, his judgment on them. That shows up all through the prophets. The, The day of the Lord, the day that the Lord comes to judge is a day of darkness and gloom. And then as he leads his people, Israel, out of Egypt and out into the wilderness, how does he lead them? By a pillar of fire, a bright, shining light that illuminates the night. He guides them um, through by night as a bright light. And he instructs them how to build the the tabernacle, the the symbol of his presence. That's where you would go to to find God, to find forgiveness and and blessing. And, And in the holy place of the temple... You walk in and there's a lampstand with seven stands, the, letter, the, the number of um, completion. And on that lampstand are seven lamps always burning, always burning. It's the presence of the Lord. It's light. These two, by their very nature from creation, uh, they don't mingle, they don't mix. There is good and there is evil. And there's no confusion between the two and God separates them. We don't live in a sliding scale of gray. We don't get to choose for ourselves what is good and what is evil. What is, we don't get to make up our own morality. Those lines have been drawn. And here is the reality we as human beings, we live in darkness. We are. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're not in the light. We're sinful. We're broken. We've rebelled against him. Ephesians 4, 18 describes us. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. So we have hardened hearts. Our understanding is darkened. That's us, alienated from God, cut off from his presence, outside of the light, into the darkness. Jesus speaks about the eternal darkness, the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's his description of hell where all sinners are bound. That's what we deserve. That's where we're headed. But God is the God who creates light in the darkness, who by his light overcomes the darkness. So uh, looking forward, pointing toward Jesus, the prophet Isaiah says this, Isaiah 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Going back to the first chapter of the book of John, John 1-4-5, John says this of Jesus, in him was life and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. He's looking back to Isaiah. He's looking back to creation. He's picking up on this theme and saying, Jesus is that light. Jesus is the living word of God, and he is the light of God. Come to give light to those in the darkness. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He came 
as light, to give light. And as they crucified him, as he hung on the cross, darkness comes over the world. For three hours, thick blanket of darkness. What's going on? Oh, this is symbolism. This is the day of the Lord. This is darkness. God's judgment has come on Jesus as he bore our sin and God poured out the wrath that we deserved on him. It's shown in the the darkness. He took God's wrath in our place. Three days later then, as Jesus lay in the tomb, how does the resurrection story of Jesus start? Luke 24, 1, listen to this. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. The first day of the week, Day one out of seven, at early dawn, as light is first breaking forth, it's creation language. He's pointing back. God's doing it again. There is a new creation beginning here. The light has come. God has spoken into the darkness, created light. And in Jesus, there's hope. In Jesus, there's an escape from the darkness. There's a a new creation, a fresh start. We are dead in our sin. We are lost in the darkness. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? And he's pointing back to creation. He's saying it's that kind of power. It's the same kind of miracle by which God created light in the darkness on day one. He does that kind of miracle in the hearts of sinners to give the light of the knowledge of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. By his grace, he reaches down into our dark hearts and he speaks and he says, let there be light. with the same power, the same effectiveness that God speaks. The grace of God works. He calls out of darkness into his marvelous light. Salvation is not a small thing. This is not a a 10% or a 50% shift in the way you live your life. I'm just going to decide to go to church now. I'm going to not swear so much. I'm going to try to be a better person. I'm going to start calling myself a Christian. No. It's a radical transformation of the heart. It is God speaking light where there once was only darkness. As this metaphor suggests, it is a night and day difference. It's also not something you can just choose to do, is it? You don't just make the switch from darkness to light. You don't wake up one day and say, I think I'll have light. I think I'll follow Jesus. No, our hearts are darkened. We are dead in our sin. We were haters of God. And just like it was God and God alone who spoke into the darkness and created light in the beginning, it takes a work of God and God alone to speak into the darkness of our hearts and give the light of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's a creative work. He does that. It's not about you trying to do better, trying to clean yourself up, and i got to try to impress God, and, and I can do this Christian thing. No, you can't. You're a sinner. 
Your problem runs right to the core of who you are. It is a dark heart, a heart of stone. Only God changes hearts. Transforming work at the core of who you are, and that work is His. And it produces faith and repentance and and spiritual life with eyes to see the glory of God and a heart that loves it. If you're walking in darkness, living in sin, and right now you see the beauty of God, you see the the wonder of His grace, you see the the hideousness of sin and how it leads to, to death and brokenness, that's because of Him. That's His work. Praise Him for it. If you're saved, if you're a believer, um, we need to do away with this tendency in ourselves to say, you're welcome, God. Like, like it's gym class, and aren't you glad you picked me? He must have had early pick to get me on his team. No, no. No, you were lost. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. 1 Corinthians 1, 30, 31. And because of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He did it. It's his work. There's no place for us to boast. There's no place for us to to brag and say, I just knew a little bit better than my neighbor. I was just a little more holy. I was just a little more spiritually perceptive. No, God did that. There's no place for us to boast, none. For those whom he calls, in whose heart he shines his light, bringing faith and and repentance and and new life, there's a new future. A future of of perfect and eternal light. Remember day one of creation? The first thing God does in, in creating light, but there's no sun or moon, and we have this weird tension hanging there, and it's and it's a little bit awkward. I love this. God is bookending the Bible. Because Revelation 21, 23 says this. In the city, the new city, the new creation, has no need for sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the lamb, that's Jesus. And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Eternity of endless day. Light shining brightly and no sun. No moon, because it doesn't need a source, because the Lord is its source. It doesn't need a, a different source, a secondary source. It is the glory of God shining What a cool thing. We start the Bible going, what is that? And we get to the end and go, oh, I see it now. There it is. There's a purpose to this. That's what lies in store for those who are in Christ. For those who have had his light shine in their hearts and and by his merciful grace have come to to trust in him. Josh, why don't you come? We're going to close this morning celebrating that reality taking a few moments to remember again the sacrifice of Christ for us, the light of the world who took our darkness on himself so that he could shine his light into our dark hearts.
who rescued us from the, the bottomless darkness of hell into his glorious light of eternity. Now, if you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't know if I have that light. I don't know if that's me. Um, just abstain. Just let the elements pass by. Um, this is for the believers this morning. This is for those who can say, uh, I know he died in my place. He took my sin. Um, he has called me out of darkness in his marvelous light. Um, and so we're going we're gonna to sing as the elements are handed out. Hang on to them. Um, you'll find two cups with the uh, juice on top and the bread on the bottom. So just hang on to that uh, and we'll uh, come back up and we'll partake together in a moment. Um, but would you stand? Um,